We're going to turn back this morning for our study from the Bible, from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, where we read from together. And uh, we continue looking um, at high speed through the uh, Gospel of Mark, uh, which was written to tell us about Jesus and to encourage us and challenge us about Jesus. And I think one of the interesting things about Mark's gospel, I'm sure the whole of the Bible, but maybe particularly uh, in Mark and in his thinking, is uh, a need for us when we read his gospel uh, to find ourselves being constantly realigned. So, and that's very true of the Christian life generally, that the, the Christian life challenges us constantly to realign our lives. Uh, to see ourselves, and Mark's very concerned that we see ourselves as Jesus sees us, or as God sees us, and also for us to see Jesus as he is, not Jesus that we would like him to be, or Jesus that we think that he is, or Jesus that would be a fabled kind of Jesus, but Jesus as he's presented. And every time we come to the Scripture, the living Word of God, and tonight we're going to look at the Bible and the, the authority of the Bible and why the Bible's got authority uh, as God's Word in our lives, and we're going to uh, spend a bit of time looking at that. But as we look at uh, uh, the Bible and Mark's Gospel in this chapter, we will always find that we're surprised by Jesus. We're surprised by who he is. We're surprised, even though we may have read the chapter hundreds of times before, we'll be surprised at what we might find. And I'm surprised when I go to study Scripture again at how much better Jesus is than my understanding of Jesus and how often how much worse I am than my thinking of myself. And so the Bible is challenging us, and these passages are challenging us to be realigned, realignment constantly around uh, uh, the presentation of Jesus and the presentation of ourselves. And the aim of that is transformation, that our lives are transformed, that we meet with Jesus uh, through the Word and uh, by faith, and that He transforms us as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, that you'll be challenged by the presentation of Jesus in the Gospel and by the authority of that uh, and the mirror, kind of, sometimes, that the Bible uh, becomes to our own heart and soul and what we're like. So Jesus is presented. And really what I'm going to do just in this chapter, I'm going to uh, tap into one or two different things about Jesus in this chapter. Um, and I'm just going to lay it before you there quite uh, simply. that uh, Jesus is presented in this chapter, and Mark is presenting him in a certain way. And I'm going to po point out some of the different things, and I hope that they might be an encouragement and a challenge to us in our lives. The first thing I want to say is maybe not what you would expect from verse 3. We didn't read this, but it was when Jesus was in his own hometown of Nazareth and he's preaching and he's doing miracles. He can't do many miracles because of the lack of faith and the, uh, the, uh, the people who are looking at him, they're grumbling and complaining and they're saying, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said only in his hometown among his relatives and his own house is a prophet without honor. And the, 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 what, the, what I wanted to pick out just briefly from there is that Jesus is a strong man, physically. That's all I wanted to say. Jesus was, we're told there, Jesus, isn't this a carpenter? And uh, what I want to stress is that Jesus here is, what we're told about Jesus here is he's a blue-collar worker. He's a strong guy. 
He's a DIY man. He was a carpenter. He was an important trade in his hometown. A carpenter would be someone who was an important blue-collar worker, someone who was able to do other um, uh, physical tasks. He was physically strong. He was technically gifted. He was very probably from a fairly early age the, the breadwinner of the home, of the family. And so he's a strong, uh, physical, blue-collar guy. And I want to stress that because so often we've got a pansy kind of idea of Jesus. He's a sort of soft, tippy-tappy kind of uh, ethereal, white-dressed white man that, that's for saps and for, for, for people who are not really, uh, uh, or they isn't a strong and, and real man. And I think that's something we need to disabuse ourselves of. And we recognize, and that's so often, I'm, I'm years ago, I've probably said this hundreds of times, when we were doing uh, missions uh, as a young Christian, we used to do missions and used to be knocking people's doors in different places. And uh, usually, very often, the response you got when you knocked on the door and said, you're for a mission team from the church, you wanted to share the gospel. And if it was a guy who answered the door, the guy would say, oh, hold on, I'll go and get my wife. And that was it, you see, it was because it was kind of women stuff the gospel. And uh, it's because of the kind of soft and, and, and uh, gentle, meek picture of Jesus that somehow he wasn't a real man and he wasn't a real person at that level. And yet he was a working uh, a breadwinner, a, a, a carpenter. And um, it's great to have men and women in the church. And it's important. Church isn't just religion and Christianity and the gospel and relationship with Christ isn't just for women. Uh, it is for women, absolutely, but it's also for men. And that's a good thing. And it's great to have that mixture. And it's great to be able to share that gospel with men as well as with women. That it's not as soft and, and, uh, and insignificant and uh, irrelevant uh, thing to men in their lives as well as to women in their lives. Jesus is a strong man, by the way. He was also an authoritative teacher uh, we recognize that from uh, what they were saying uh, in the early verses that he, you know, he spoke uh, with authority. Where, what wisdom has been given to him, we're told in verse 2. And then in verse 8, that he, he goes to send the disciples out and he says to them, you know, take nothing for your journey. Uh, wear sandals, but not extra tunic. Whatever you enter a house, stay there till you leave that town. If anyone will not welcome you, listen to you, shake the dust off your feet for a testimony against them. So he's an authoritative leader also, authoritative teacher. That was even recognized by his opponents, by the people who didn't like him. They said, well, who is he? But he does speak and preach with authority. And he instructed his disciples and he sent them out. And he did so with a great sense of authority to them. And he said, look, this is how you're to go. And if people wouldn't listen to what you have to say in this message of repentance, move on. Go to the next place. We don't have time to linger and to wait about. And so he speaks with great authority, reminding them and us of the solemnity of responding to the message of Jesus Christ and the solemnity of rejecting. I don't think for a minute this was a, uh, a rejection which meant they could never hear again or never respond again. But uh, in the time in which the disciples had, they had to go out and share the gospel and move on from town to town. It's this, this whole kind of fast-moving um, ministry of Jesus that's presented in Mark's gospel. He was authoritative in what he said. But it's also uh, really good to know that along with his authority, he was also a caring leader. And we find that uh, authoritative leader, caring leader, um, we find it in different places, but in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 here in verse 31, 
he's sent out the disciples, he's given them lots of work to do, it's energetic, and then they come together and there's a big crowd and it just seems to be relentless and he says, look, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place in verse 31 and get some rest. So he's given his disciples work, and he's spoken to them with authority, but he also understands the demands that he's making on them and says, look, you, you need to rest sometimes. He's strong, but he's sensitive. Sensitive to their needs. Great leadership. Isn't that great leadership? Leadership that we should mimic. Leadership that you should pray for in the congregation here and in the church. uh, That is both strong but also uh, caring. And he knew uh, himself their needs. And he knew that they needed to rest. And he knows our needs. And he knows he can't push us too far. And sometimes as Christians we're struggling with the Christian faith. And it's a battle for us. And he says, well, just take time. Pull back. It's difficult. Pull back and take a rest. Stop doing what you're doing. The church will survive without you. You know, the Christian faith doesn't rest on you. Just take a step back. Take a rest. Because he's a caring and sensitive leader and recognizes our need for quietness and being with him. But himself, while being authoritative, strong, and caring, he himself is a hugely available leader that is presented here. Because... You know, he himself is this intense, concentrated, short ministry, which is he's always being demanded. Demands are always being made of him. And so here we've got this account of uh, um, not being able to eat, and, and they try to go by themselves away in, in the story of the 5,000 in a solitary place. But many come and saw them and, and recognized them, and they ran on foot. They, they, you can imagine the guys are going across in a boat, and all the crowd are running around the, the, the coastline to get to the other side first. And they're just, come on, Jesus is going to be there. Let's go and hear him. So he doesn't get peace and quiet. And uh, we're told that when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So while he himself understood the needs of his disciples, he wasn't willing to take the rest himself because he was available as a servant. This Jesus Christ, this Son of God, this glorious one of whom we've been singing, this resurrected Lord, this sovereign, infinite God who comes in the person of the Son is a servant, not a professional. He comes because there's great need and he sees that need and he looks with shepherd's eyes, shepherd of his day, shepherd that loved the sheep, was with the sheep, to the sheep and he looked at them you know, he, wasn't, he didn't say, oh, for goodness sake, give me a break. I've been working already. I've done more than my shift. He doesn't say that. He's available because he has great compassion and because he's the great shepherd of his sheep, the shepherd who wants to teach the crowds, even the crowds that Mark is sometimes quite cynical about in, in the gospel. You know, the crowds, it's always the crowds and then the disciples, and the crowds come and go. And the crowds like his miracles, but they don't really like his teaching. And then they end up, of course, crying to crucify him. But here the crowds are Jesus' season, are sheep without a shepherd, and he wants to protect them and feed them and care for them and and carry their young. Isn't that a great model of leadership? Isn't it beautiful to see that? That glorious picture of who Jesus Christ is. Is it not magnificent? Magnificent to see the children here on a Sunday morning and to be able to share their prayers. Is it not great that this is the kind of saviour 
that Jesus shows himself to be a Savior who is caring and who is protective and available to whom we can always go, to whom we can always pray. With all the, the youthfulness of our prayers and the simplicity of our requests, we can go to him and he's always there. He's always available. And that is our Savior and also, I believe, our uh, example as Christians and as leaders. But maybe more specifically, there's two things I want to pick out in terms of what is de- uh, described about Jesus here. And that's in the two miracles. The one of the feeding of the fine. You know these miracles so well. I'm not going to go into them in any depth whatsoever. But the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is a reminder to us here of the Jesus who is the great provider. Now, this isn't just a miracle. We don't read and say, well, oh, there's another miracle. Well, that's another miracle. He did lots of miracles. And uh, wasn't it great that he did miracles to show his power, to show the kind of things he could do, to feed the people? It wasn't just a miracle, if we can talk in these terms. It wasn't just to feed the people. There's something greater, there's something deeper, more spiritual in what he's doing. He does all these things, of course. But the, the, it's a declaration of who he is. It's a declaration with a kind of Old Testament backdrop. Remember, Jesus knew the Scriptures. Jesus knew his own Old Testament Scriptures. He's the author of these, and the Old Testament Scriptures have, have all been about preparing for the coming of this Jesus. And so there's this declaration of a Savior who is there to provide, who is there to uh, give people nourishment, to give them what they need, both I think both in physical terms, but much more significantly also in spiritual terms. It does kind of recall some Old Testament miracles. Miracle of the provision of manna. You know, Moses takes the people through the desert and how are we going to survive this? And God provides for them manna. And they are provided miraculously with food throughout that journey in the desert. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, is miraculously fed by ravens who bring him food by God, or by the angels in 1 Kings 19, where in his tiredness, again, that that sense of God caring for Elijah having done great miracles, in his tiredness, he's provided for uh, miraculously by God. Or Elisha with the widow's oil, uh, when there's this miraculous provision, speaks of the providing God, the God who gives, the God who provides. Or maybe even... uh, to spiritualize it, I hope that's not wrong to do so, in, the, in Isaiah 55, where salvation uh, is spoken of um, as uh, come, uh, the invitation, come to all you are thirsty, come to the waters, you have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor, what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, he says, eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. So this this picture, this food picture, which relates to the spiritual provision that God gives. And it's as if the, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, I'm not going to go into the mechanics of it or, or, or really the detail of it, but the reality of it that we're, we take and accept is that it's speaking of a God who provides, that Jesus is the greater Moses, is the greater Elijah, is the God who has provided in the Old Testament in these ways and is the God who will provide in salvation there's also probably hints in it of uh, the Lord's Supper in the sense that that Jesus is directing the meal Uh, he is 
the host, as it were, of the meal. He tells them to sit down. He gives thanks. He, he breaks the bread. He gives it to the disciples to distribute. It's so very like, in a sense, the Lord's Supper that he institutes uh, at the Passover meal uh, later on. And, and that Lord's Supper, which uh, speaks about his own body and his own blood, which is shed, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. And that physical reminder, do you think, and this is speculation, so you can throw it away, but do you think that some of these people who were in the crowd who later on became Christians, who maybe watched the crucifixion and then uh, responded on, on the day of Pentecost, I wonder if they thought back, Lord, that, Jesus did that earlier. He, he fed us before. He broke bread and he gave us and we gave thanks. And it, it, it may have spurred in them this kind of this mental picture of his own uh, miraculous provision. And it's interesting, this glorious meal, uh, this abundant meal, this meal with uh, uh, lots left over because he's an abundant God and he gives us far more than we need. He gives us uh, much more because he's extravagant and he's glorious. It's set uh, completely in juxtaposition to Herod's meal in this chapter. I don't think meaninglessly or uh, randomly. You know, this uh, kind of uh, depraved and uh, debauched meal that Herod has, which is a, a miserable reflection of celebration and of goodness, where they, there's drunkenness and there's lust and then there's, there's uh, betrayal and uh, murder, you know, where uh, Herodias, who's having an affair uh, with Herod, uh, nurses a grudge, we're told, against John and wants him killed so that when uh, her daughter dances uh, uh, seductively before a drunk king, uh, he makes promises that he, he f doesn't realize about or think about, and she asks for John the Baptist's head in a platter. So the, the great contrast between the ugliness of sometimes our celebrations and the way we do things without God and his uh, amazing provision uh, both physically and spiritually. But we also see that he craves fellowship himself. He craves fellowship as God with, with his Father. In verse 46, again, the busyness of, of his ministry, uh, he goes with the disciples into a boat and then he dismisses the crowd and he leaves them, the disciples, and he goes up on a mountainside to pray. And again, it's that picture. We mentioned it on Wednesday night, this picture of Jesus Christ longing to be in the presence of the Father. This Trinitarian longing. And it, kind of, it speaks to us just that he, he just longed to be in that place of prayer. The sacrifice. Reminds us of the sacrifice of his incarnation ripping him, as it were, from the Father's breast. And I wonder in these times if he prayed and was tempted to return to his father. These guys, they reject me. They're not interested. Should I just go home now? But certainly we know that uh, it speaks of the cost to set us free, that he needed to be strengthened and encouraged and built up by the father in prayer as he did this ministry on their behalf. And the last thing that I want to mention about Jesus as it's related to us here is again that he, who he is, that he's God. 
in the flesh for us. So we've got another miracle, Jesus walking in the water. Another miracle. He feeds people. He gives them bread. And then he walks in water. The cause of much hilarity and laughter over the centuries, Jesus walking in the water. You know, who could ever walk in the water? That's crazy. It's mental. But it's not written as mental. It's not written as fable. It's not written as myth. It's written in the context of a factual historical account of the Jesus who is a miracle worker because of who he is, because he is God. And again, it's more than just, I'm God because I'm walking on the water. It's more than that, especially as we look again with a kind of Old Testament understanding of God being revealed right through that. So here we have God, Jesus Christ, and he's, he's gone up the mountainside to pray, but he's praying with one eye open. That's good, isn't it? It's good to pray with one eye open because he's watching the disciples as well. And they, obviously he can see them in the, in the lake, and he can, well, on the boat in the lake, and they're struggling. They're straining at the oars and things are difficult. He saw the disciples straining on the oars, praying with one eye open. And uh, then we're told that he, uh, about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking in the lake. He was about to pass them by. Not a terribly accurate translation. He passed them by. It's probably more accurate. When they saw him walking in the lake, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out. And then he goes on to say, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. And again, the, the kind of, it's not a kind of Python-esque farce. But this, the language that's used, where we told that he, he passed them by is very significant language because it's the same language with old, you know, as we look through Old Testament shadows, it's the same language that's used of God appearing to Moses in Exodus 33, where God passed by and revealed himself to Moses and revealed his glory to Moses because Moses needed that because he was afraid. It's the, same, it's the same kind of image that's used in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Kings 19 of Elijah, when Elijah needed to see uh, God and we're told that uh, God passed by and his glory was real. Remember, not in the earthquake, not in the hurricane, uh, but in a gentle whisper. But he passed by. And it's the same language that's used here of Jesus. He passed by. <laughs> you know, we get the impression that uh, uh, he, was, he was about to walk past them. It's as if he was just going for a walk in the water. And they go, oh, there's a boat. And the disciples are in it. And he just happened to be. It's not like that at all. There's something much more divine about this. It's that he's passing by because he's revealing who he is. It's almost transfigurational. You know, the transfiguration where his glory is revealed, it's like that. And you see, we can, we recognize that because the disciples will go, hey, there's Jesus walking on the water. That's great. How would you do that? They don't like that. They're absolutely terrified. They saw him and they cried out and they were terrified because this isn't the kind of Jesus they thought, you know, that it was a kind of fancy magic man that could walk on water. And that isn't as great. They were terrified because this was a revelation of him as God. And why can we have more assurance that that's the case? Well, again, it's because he says when they, he spoke to them, he said, take courage. And how he, what he literally says is, take courage, I am. Okay, take courage, I am. Now, we know from the Bible that that is the same, uh, translated, it's the same as Jehovah. I am. It's the Old Testament revelation of the name of God. You know, it was given to Moses at the burning bush. Tell, tell them, I am sent you. I am. This, 
Yahweh, this Jehovah name of God. And so Jesus says here, they're terrified as they see him walking by, this revelation of who he is. And he says, take courage, I am God. Don't be afraid. And he, he does that because we're told here, it's explained that it's because they didn't understand about the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And this is to help them understand who he is. And the best bit about this story is I am. This transfigured God who passes them and who reveals his glory. What does he do? I love this bit. He climbed into the boat with them. (laughs) King of kings scrambles into the boat to be with them. Climbs into the boat. This revelation of who he is and this glorious reveal. What a great picture. And what great words, you know, don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm coming into the boat with you. I'm going to be in your troubles. It's just a picture of this God, this incarnation God. It's a picture of Philippians that we're going to sing at the end of the service today, who made himself nothing, who climbs into the boat. He climbs into your boat, the struggles that you have, the difficulties. He comes in and with us. This is a God that we're asked to trust in. Don't be afraid, he says. Take courage. We're so afraid so often. So these are some of the pictures of Jesus that were given here. Now, very briefly as we close, uh, there's also pictures of ourselves. So we realign ourselves to to the Jesus who's revealed, a Jesus who's authoritative, who is compassionate, who's caring, who's glorious, who is strong, who's a provider, who's a miracle, but who points towards his death and resurrection. But then ourselves, the people, and ourselves, it's no different. You know, people are no different. They're different culturally, different in time, but really we're all the same. And, and sometimes it's not pretty what the Bible tells us, but it only tells us because it's kind of like a diagnosis. It wants us to, to point us towards the great healer, to the one who will give us forgiveness and hope and a future. So it's like the bad news of going to a doctor and being told you've got something wrong with you, but the good news of being told, well, we've got a cure. In order, and it's not like that in the sense that the, the cure here is guaranteed because of his death and resurrection on our behalf. Just to understand our need, in other words. We'll never go and look for Jesus if we don't understand our need. So we've got pictures of people here that remind us sometimes of ourselves. People who we saw before who take offense at Jesus. They took offense at him. They grew up with him. They knew who he was, the people in Nazareth. They didn't have anything against him. There was, they couldn't say, this guy's a hypocrite. This guy's not really who he says he is. But they're, they are, they're offended that he's so wise and he can do miracles and yet he's the son of Mary. That he's, in other words, he's so ordinary. They wanted a flash savior. They wanted more drama. They wanted someone who had credentials. Not just a carpenter from, not a blue collar worker from Nazareth to be the savior. They took offense at him. And that's the reality, isn't it? That we take offense at Jesus. And maybe today you're not a Christian and you take offense at the idea of, of a, a, crucified and resi- or a crucified and a resurrected Jew from 2,000 years ago is God and claims authority over your life and claims one day that he will meet you uh, and uh, be our judge. We take offense at the message. We take offense at the exclusivity of the message that there's one way that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible reminds us that that is, that is how we are. We, take, we can easily take offense at Jesus because it's in our nature. 
to be offended by God because of our sinful hearts. But more than that, we can reject him. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 11, you will go and tell uh, people about the gospel, about Jesus, and about the message of repentance. You will be able to do great things, and people will not listen to you. They will reject you. So great miracles were done, and still they rejected. The reminder is that it's not more proof that we need to turn to Jesus. It's a changed heart. Because all these people had amazing miracles. Maybe you're sitting here today saying, well, if I had more miracles to show me, then I'd believe in Jesus. But if we'll not believe in a blue-collar worker from Nazareth, as revealed in Scripture, we'll not believe any miracles that may happen because the problem is not proof and evidence and miracles. The problem is our heart, is that it's a message that comes from God that saves, but also condemns when we turn our back on him. It's that irrational hatred of good news. This is good news, the gospel. Jesus says, I love you so much. I've gone to the cross. I've satisfied divine justice. I've risen from the dead. I'm alive. I'm offering you eternal life. It's good news. But of course, it's in the, the backdrop of our need. And sometimes we reject that. But more than that, and humanity is all, all these colors, and to a lesser or greater degree, we are in our own sinful hearts, is that we can hold a grudge against uh, God and ignore him altogether. Herodias, she nursed a grudge against John for his teaching. Uh, and as a representative, a prophet of God, held a grudge against God as a result. When we leave God out of the picture of our lives, we hold a grudge against God, then very often the kind of hedonistic and pleasure-seeking celebrations of Herod's feast become what life is about. And yet it descends, isn't it? It's descending downwards, a spiral downwards. And God's left out of the picture. And we have a reminder in Scripture here that evil isn't evolutionary, nor is evil reasonable, not even is it natural. Evil is the moral rejection of a good God and his goodness. And it leaves us under his judgment. Now we can be ostriches and we can just stick our head in the sand and ignore him. But we recognize that there needs to be a coherent reason that you can give for the existence of evil apart from God if you're going to do that. Not just out there, in our own hearts and then also we see here doubt uh, a response to Jesus and this is very much from the disciples you know when Jesus says give them something to eat in the miracle of the 5,000 they say what? that's 8 months wages there's no way we can do that and then of course in 52 uh, in the uh, walking on the water incident uh, that they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't know uh, what was happening. They didn't understand. There was doubt there. And that's so often what we're like. We're slow to believe and sometimes we're blind to Jesus. But the great thing is that these disciples is how Jesus persevered with them and loved them and didn't let them go. And they became world beaters, turning the world upside down 
with this glorious gospel that they shared uh, with others. Ordinary people. That's who they were. Ordinary people. And tonight we'll look at the Bible even being authored by ordinary people that God breathes his truth into. So we recognize our hearts. Um, well, sorry, I, I don't want to make any assumption of what you recognize. I recognize what I see in my own heart. I recognize the doubts and the fears and uh, sometimes the opposition uh, towards a holy and pure God and the need for forgiveness and grace. But the beauty of grace is that it's not about me. And it's not about my goodness and my efforts. Uh, but like the disciples, we just keep going back to Jesus Christ and receive his gift and receive his encouragement and his teaching. He's the one who transforms us. He's the one who uh, is hugely significant. And he's the one who transforms our hearts and makes us the kind of people that he wants us to be. And that's great. It's, can I, just, I want to finish with this. It's, just, it's not so much about what you hear from the service, however significant is that. Uh, it's not so much being part of a great church or not, um, however important that is. But it's about being in touch with Jesus Christ. Uh, you know that old adage, give a man a fish and you will feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish or a woman to fish and you will feed them for a lifetime. The aim of preaching is not just to give you fish for a day. It's to point you to Jesus who will feed you for a lifetime spiritually. So everything here is to point you to Jesus because he's the one who will feed you. He's the one that you need to be in relationship with. He's the one you will stand before. That's the relationship that matters. Not your relationship with one another necessarily in spiritual terms. Not your relationship with the church However, God uses all these things. I'm not diminishing the importance of them. But I'm saying in our lives, it's about being fed and being nourished and being in relationship with Jesus personally. And that is what uh, the Word encourages, and I hope uh, the Spirit will encourage uh, you to do and me to do in our lives, that we go to Him for the nourishment, for the feeding, to, to see Him as He is, to recognize He's the great God, to hear Him saying, Take courage don't be afraid and to put your faith and trust in him. If you don't uh, believe in Jesus, then I do encourage you to pray to him and ask him to show himself to you in the Bible and to show the truth uh, of himself to you, that it will challenge and move and change and transform you, as we all need to be moved, challenged and changed and transformed by him. May that be our experience. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the constant challenge uh, to be realigned both in our understanding of who Jesus is and also in our understanding of who we are because we find therein is going to be freedom for us and forgiveness and repentance and uh, hope. We thank you for that message which is one of uh, repentance and trust where we turn away from our independence and our often selfish pride and, and rejection of Jesus and that we come and recognize his lordship and his glorious love and his great grace and so Lord we pray that you would have your 
uh, your own way today through your word as it is preached and shared and read and sung today. And that you bless us as we gather again this evening in Jesus' name. And that you watch over us throughout this day and all that we do. And that God would be given the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 